The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigene Technologies. Today we are fortunate to be talking with Penny Sanderson. Penny is a professor of cognitive engineering and human factors at the University of Queensland, where she has appointments in the School of Psychology, the School of Information Technology and Electrical Engineering, and the School of Clinical Medicine. She graduated with her BA with honors from the University of Western Australia, and then completed her PhD at the University of Toronto in Canada. She worked for 11 years at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign before returning to her native Australia. In her research, Penny develops, tests, and applies theories about the human role in complex socio-technical systems. She's conducted research in healthcare, power systems, air defense, air traffic control, and emergency response. She has made important contributions to our understanding of the impact of workplace interruptions on work performance, the design of effective auditory interfaces and safety-critical systems, and the perceptual, cognitive, and social effects of wearable technologies. Penny is a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia, the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, and the International Ergonomics Association. She's a, she has received many awards, including the Distinguished International Colleague Award and the Paul M. Fitz Educator Award from the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, the Jerome H. Eli Best Paper Award twice from the journal Human Factors, the Franklin V. Taylor Award for Outstanding Contributions in the Field of Applied Experimental Engineering Psychology from the American Psychological Association. Penny, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you very much, Laura and Brian, for inviting me. So I wanted to start by going back to the very beginning of your career. Do you remember the very first paper you ever published? Yes, I do. Um, Actually, the very first paper I published was with the Human Factors Association of Canada when I was a PhD student. And uh, that was with some students. I was in one of Neville Murray's classes at University of Toronto. And uh, we wrote a paper on um, how often supervisors should sample information in a simulated control room. And unfortunately, it's very difficult for me to know what was in that paper because when it was published in the proceedings, they only published every second page in in the paper. Um, So it's sort of lost to history now. <laughs> wow. So but that was about power plant power plant control rooms? Yes, it was a very simulated labor a very simple simulated laboratory experiment where we had a series of dials and we looked at how often people would sample the dials. So it was very much in in the tradition of Tom Sheridan's work and John Sender's work. Um Neville worked very closely with um Tom Sheridan and uh, John Sender's. And so it was a a class exercise that we had done, but it was sufficiently interesting that it it got accepted at the the local conference there. So that was my first experience. That was a conference paper, and that was in 1982. But my first journal paper was much later than that. It was in 1989, after I had started at University of Illinois. And uh, so um, I had uh, a journal paper then that was actually a very psychological paper. It was published in JEP, Learning, Memory and Cognition. And that was about 
um, whether people can verbalize knowledge that they have when they're interacting with a, a dynamic system. So it was getting closer to um, some of my later work. Interesting. So you started as many people do in academia doing experiments and kind of uh, simplified simulated tasks. And so I wonder um, how you kind of made the turn to working in more complex naturalistic um, environments with with this you know broader focus on cognitive engineering. How, how did you make your way there? Well, it's a great, great question because um, these days many people, many students are fortunate enough to start in that area, whereas I had to make the, the turn, if you like, from traditional psychology, traditional experimental psychology to these richer, more naturalistic fields. Uh, so I suppose... Um, I suppose it started for me in the very final year of my undergraduate degree at University of Western Australia. I was getting trained in a, a pretty traditional way in experimental psychology. And then in my final year, we had a visiting professor, Stephen Schwartz, an American, um, who uh, was just starting a career in Australia at that point. And uh, he gave us some lectures on human factors. And he was talking about work that was being done at NASA. He was talking about things like the London Underground Transit Map and how they had been designed for human use. And I thought that was a pretty fascinating area. But uh, I didn't get started in it until much later. After I, I went to University of Toronto to do my, my master's and PhD, I was still headed towards doing studies in human memory but it wasn't really grabbing me for the first year that, that I was there. And, um, but then one of my fellow students uh, said very excitedly that uh, she'd heard that Neville Murray was coming to University of Toronto. He'd been working in the United Kingdom. And uh, Neville, of course, was very well known for, for work on attention, on um, the fate of stimuli that are attended or unattended. Uh, can we... Um, remember or uh, grasp information that, that we're um, not really attending to. And she said, well, Neville's coming to, to the university, but he's now in engineering. He's not in psychology. He's doing human factors work. So we went over and took one of his courses, and I found that really, really interesting because he and, and other people in, in the Department of Industrial Engineering, like John Senders, were applying completely different paradigms to an understanding of human interaction with, with systems. And the thing that was really fascinating about that also was that uh, they were members of this wonderful international community of scholars that, that were trying to solve problems about human system interaction post Three Mile Island. And I know, you know quite a few um, previous people in your podcasts have talked about that era. And uh, so it all fell in place for me at that point. That's so interesting. So I didn't realize that psychologists were moving into industrial engineering departments, and that was part of the um, magic that was happening at that time. Yes. The, the, the fascinating thing was the nature of the problems that, that were being solved. And of course, at that time, a lot of focus was on nuclear safety, nuclear human factors. And uh, so um, there were a lot of people coming in and out of the department, a lot of uh, uh, colleagues in that area. So that's where I first got to meet Dave Woods, Jens Rasmussen, Lizette, um, Lizanne Bainbridge. They all um, visited 
the Department of Industrial Engineering at University of Toronto, where Neville was working at the time. Um, so it was a wonderful introduction to the, the community of practice, if you like. And uh, so, uh, and then as a student, and, and the whole community of students there were very much welcomed into that community. And, and uh, we had the opportunity to go to conferences and meetings and so on. And uh, that aspect of, of science and engineering is so important, uh, bringing students into the community of practice. And, and uh, that's the thing that, that was so delightful about um, being a student there at the time. Nice. And so was your dissertation, what was your dissertation about? My dissertation was about mental models and how people acquire an understanding of complex system. So the, the, the nature of the question was very much inspired by the work that was around me. How do, do people develop mental models of complex systems? But there was still enough of a basic psychologist in me that um, I developed a, a, a little micro world to test it. And so the micro world was a micro world of uh, an electronic circuit. So how do people develop an understanding of how that electronic circuit works? And it was a very strange thesis. And, and I remember discussing it uh, as I was getting towards the end with uh, Lizanne Bainbridge. And uh, she just pointed out the dilemma with that kind of work. She said, well, look, it's not applied enough to be useful and it's not basic enough to really illuminate any basic theories. So why are you doing it? But <laughs> I managed to succeed. I managed to get through it. Um, but it, it's, it was a, a, a very nice example of the, the dilemma when you're trying to straddle those two worlds to, to um, have a world that you can control on the one hand as a basic scientist, but on the other hand, try to address complex problems. It's very difficult when working that way to, um, to, to, to really do useful research. Sure. Yeah. And I feel like we're all still trying to figure out that balance. Yeah. 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 And I still am as well. So I have to confess, yeah. <laughs> I've gotten slightly better at it, but I can't say that I've solved it by any means. But some of um, Jens Rasmussen's work um, has been very useful there, talking about the boundaries at which we do experiments. And uh, Kathy Burns uh, from University of Waterloo and I wrote a paper a few years ago just revisiting some of Rasmussen's ideas there um, because he was saying, look, we do different kinds of experiments and um, at, at different boundaries of realism. And if we acknowledge that fact and don't try to overclaim for our experiments, um, if, if we know just how much we can generalize and can't generalize, then we don't fall into um, problems of, of claiming too much for, for our experiments. And that, that is, I think, has been very useful for just positioning um, some more tightly controlled work. Uh, Rasmussen's helped us put it in its context and not overclaim for it. And that's been very useful for, for some of the more basic work that I do to explain it to people who say, how does that generalize? So, so Penny, you're, you're talking about uh, projects that are either applied enough to be useful uh, or basic enough to be illuminating. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll throw in another adjective that is fulfilling. Can, can you think across all the projects you've done, um, which project has been kind of the most fulfilling for you personally, professionally? Most fulfilling? Um, 
Well, I, su I suppose the one that uh, I, I really love the most is some work that, that I did. And in fact, uh, William Wong talked about this when he did his podcast with you. And that was work with, with a very iconic hydropower system in Australia. Um, this is a, a, a very large electricity provider, a generator, and uh, it was built in, in the post-World War II era. And uh, people came from all over the world after the Second World War, War to, to work on this scheme, to build it. And um, I started working with them because um, in about 20 years ago, Australia's power industry was deregulated. So it started working on a more commercial market basis and a spot market for electricity was developed where um, people could bid to uh, generate electricity and sell it into the market. And prices would change very, very rapidly on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. So this was a completely different way for the electricity industry to work. And I got called in initially to do some consulting work with, with this particular provider because their, their operators in their central control room were complaining of eye strain in the, in the control room. And one thing that I had learnt from my teachers at University of Toronto is the problem that you're presented with when you go in and do a consulting job is very often not what the real problem is. So I remember being on the phone as they were initially describing this problem with the operator's eye strain and the, the new deregulated environment. And I thought, I bet you that's not what the problem is. And so I made a first visit up there and it became very clear that the operators were faced with an entirely new way of doing their work. They had new information systems, new displays, uh, which were required because now they had this commercial way of interacting with, with the, the market and, and the way they were selling uh, electricity to the market. And um, so their problems were more than just eye strain. In a sense, it was brain strain in a way. And so the whole problem opened up and uh, it was one to do with uh, the way the control rooms organized, the, the, the way they were able to, um, if you like, to get on top with what was happening in the market. Um, the, the information that they needed, because many of them had engineering backgrounds, they didn't have financial backgrounds. So uh, from that basis, a series of consulting projects and then a, a full research project eventuated, and uh, I brought William Wong in on that. And we had a wonderful time learning about the electricity industry and learning about the way these operators did their job and the thing that was so charming about that, and the reason that we both loved that pro problem or, or that domain so much, was, um, well, firstly, the nature of the problems. They were so rich. Secondly, the, the safety-critical nature of the problem. Uh, these people were controlling huge amounts of water and huge in engineering infrastructure in Australia. And the, the pride that everybody had, management right down to the workers, in their industry, in their organization, was very infectious. And uh, actually, to this day, I'm still in contact with, with the person who was our contract monitor there, 
even though we finished that job about oh, over 15 years ago. So that was uh, the, the project, uh, I think, uh, Brian, that's been the most fulfilling because we were able to do a lot of very interesting work there. But neither of us, neither William or I really thought, we, we didn't know very much about power systems engineering. And at the end, we just knew a little bit more, but we were still basically very ignorant of it. But uh, we felt that, that we had grown tremendously in doing that and our engagement with that organization had been really fulfilling. Yeah, that, that's such a, a great retelling because it touches on several levels of fulfillment. Um, I, I can appreciate the the feeling you get when you just are in these amazing places and watching people do such amazing things. That 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 alone can be fulfilling. But your your point about um, being able to inform the organization that the that the problem they reported, which is really just the symptom. Uh, is not actually what they should be focused on. I, I, yes, I've yeah. had I think that's just such a, a, a professionally fulfilling feeling that is um, it's kind of special to the kinds of work that we do because we are going into the organization and we are looking at the work up close. And so when you can reflect back to the organization um, that that they only have a, you know a hint about what's really going on, that that can be professionally pretty fulfilling too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, have them accept that as well and broaden out the scope of investigation. Um, that, that, was, that was good too. You know, they, they, they saw what we were talking about. So Penny, you've worked in so many interesting areas. I, I know you've done um, some exciting work around um, workplace interruptions. And I wondered if you'd just tell us a little bit about some of the um, interesting things you're learning there. Yes, thank you. Yeah, um, th this has been a thread for us uh, for, for quite a few years, for over a decade now. Um, I've done a lot of work in that area with uh, some of my students, and, and I can tell you about some of that. Um, started in the area, but because uh, starting from about 2005, there was a huge upsurge of interest in the area of workplace interruptions. And it was really being driven by cognitive psychology theories um, of uh, what happens cognitively when, when you're doing a task and then you get diverted from it, distracted from it. You need to turn your attention to another task. Does that mean that you necessarily can pick up the original task um, when the interruption has finished? And there's a lot of work that's been done in laboratory contexts that, that shows that um, people may take a long time to resume the task or they may resume the task at the wrong point. They may miss a step or they may repeat a step or they may not ever go back to the task at all. They forget what they were doing entirely and start something new. And so there was a lot of experimental work being done in the area. But in the healthcare area, we, we had colleagues like Enrico Coyera here in Australia who, who was a clinician himself, and he was uh, looking at starting to look at interruptions as being a patient safety hazard in the healthcare area. And so they were doing a lot of work on that. And uh, so we started doing work in the area. So the first work that I, I did was with PhD student at the time, Toby Grundgeiger. And uh, we went into an intensive care unit at uh, one of the local hospitals and um, Toby did some terrific field research, 
looking at how intensive care unit nurses handle interruptions. And uh, he was able to uh, use eye tracking equipment with ICU nurses for the first few hours of their morning shift. And we went in um, thinking along the lines that most of the time where healthcare workers are interrupted, they don't make errors. So um, how, how do they avoid making errors? What, what are the secrets of, of their success? Or what are the, the, the practices that they engage in that, that mean that most of the time this is not a problem? Because we need to look at the success side of the story, not just sort of look at the, the very tiny body of evidence that, that there the might be dangers there. And uh, so we, we developed this whole approach that, that we called distributed prospective memory. One of the, the problems with interruptions is that you forget to do things that you plan to do. So there are failures of prospective memory, and that's one of the, the, the problems with interruptions. Um, but uh, Toby knew from his observations that uh, the nurses would set things up in such a way that, uh, that they would not fail. So, for example, um, there's some nice examples in the paper that, that he wrote that came out in JEP Applied, um, that the nurses, if they were halfway through drawing up a medication, when they got interrupted, they would hold the syringe or the ampoule in their hand while they handled the interruption. So that when the interruption finished, they, they'd look, what have I got in my hand? Oh, it's that syringe or ampoule, and I was halfway through that job or they would put post-its up as reminders to do things and so on. So there was a lot of just natural behavior that, that was preventing them from suffering the consequences of an interruption. And when and, and Toby was uh, looking at whether interruptions made it difficult for people to resume their tasks, and he was looking at one particular measure, which was the resumption lag. So how long does it actually take you to resume the tasks that you were previously doing. But because of all this success that people had in getting back to their previous task, he found that most of the time, well, a lot of the time, there was no resumption lag at all. They just got straight back to what they were doing. Um, so you know, the, 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 the logic, the resilience of the domain itself was preventing us from even observing what, we, what theory told us we should um, observe. But there were quite a few occasions where there was a resumption lag, where there was a little bit of time before people went back to the original task after the interruption. And Toby was able to show very elegantly that there were some factors like the length of the interruption and whether people changed the context that they were in um, that actually did lengthen the interruption lag. So, but it only, it was a very small lag anyway. It was only a few seconds and it was only extended by a few seconds. So here's the dilemma again about theory and practice, being in naturalistic environments versus um, testing and exploring basic theories. Um, when we did find a small subset of cases where there was a resumption lag, it, um, it conformed to some of the theories. We did find that the resumption lag was longer when theory told us it would be longer. But what was really interesting was all the cases where there wasn't a resumption lag, all the naturalistic practices that people engaged in to make them less prone to, to 
um, suffering from the consequences of the interruption. So, so um, that that was a very interesting set of studies. Since then, we, we've um, done further work. Tara McCurdy did a lot of work in in the same in intensive care unit, and here we were looking at um, interruptions not as a cognitive challenge to people, but as a systems challenge. So we, following on um, the work of Ed Hutchins about you know, distributed cognition and so on, we said, well, look, the, the whole intensive care unit is a system that has work where the work needs to interrupt itself to get itself done. So different people, different disciplines in the intensive care unit are agents of different functions that the intensive care unit needs to carry out. And so when we do work on interruptions, and there's a lot of field research out there, we can't just look at interruptions in nurses or interruptions in doctors or interruptions in respiratory therapists. We need to look at interruptions in everybody, every discipline that's there, because including the, 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 the secretarial and administrative staff, and the people that come in and out of the unit, like respiratory therapists and pharmacists and so on, because they are all arms of the intensive care unit and they're all agents of the work that the system needs to, to get its work done. And uh, as a result, um, Tara was able to do a much richer study looking at um, who interrupts, interrupts whom and why they interrupt. And, and she developed a, a technique for sending two observers out, one to look at the interruptions and the other one, where appropriate, to follow up why interruptions were occurring, so following the people who had interrupted if it was appropriate and saying, why was that needed right then and uh, were there any, any alternatives for doing that and, and why had they evaporated at that point and why did this um, seem the obvious thing to do? So it was very much taking a systems approach um, to, to interruptions, which was a bit difficult, a bit different from what had been done in the past. So those are just some of the, the, the more field-related work um, that, that we have done in interruptions. So maybe just gives you a bit of a flavor of some of that work. Yeah, so uh, so many things I like about this. So that first one um, where you were really looking at the strategies uh, people use to be resilient, to manage interruptions. Yeah. Um, I feel like so often we ignore that. We're just, just looking at the problems. So that is a really powerful study. Um, and, and your observation that the, um, even when the, ob the interruptions created a lag, they had generally worked it out so it, it didn't have a negative impact on the patient. That's right. And, and it just illustrated that um, the, the theory is applicable, but its impact operationally in that context was pretty small, actually, compared with all these other strategies that, that people were engaged in and compared with the timeframes at which things that are significant actually happen in that domain. It was relatively small. So it was important theoretically. It, it showed that the theories were robust. But when you put them in their operational context, there's so much more that, that you need to take into account in order to account for professional performance. So it, it was uh, both a success, but very educational at the same time. Yeah. And then the second one, um, the fact that you you, uh, you and, and, and Tara took it up a level 
and started thinking about the whole system as opposed to an individual role and looked at not just the consequences of the interruption, but what drove the interruption. Um, that also is a, a, a great perspective that I think lots of people talk about studying, but finding a way to do that effectively is tricky. And, um, and this, this strategy of following the interrupter and just understanding that is brilliant. Well, it, it was um, quite a difficult thing to execute. Um, we wrote a paper on that, um, one of the, the, the outputs of Tara McCurdy's PhD, and we called it the, the dual perspectives method. So you have two perspectives, the perspective of the person who was interrupted and the perspective of the person who was interrupting. And uh, a lot of previous research had just looked at one perspective or the other perspective. So both perspectives were represented in the literature, but uh, it's pretty seldom that you're looking at both perspectives for the same event itself. And that was what was uh, novel about that work. Very nice. So then another area of your research that I'm really curious about is the work you've done about auditory displays and medical devices. So anyone that's been in a hospital setting, you know, those monitors and alarms are just part of the background. But you've done some really interesting research to kind of understand um, the impact they have. Can you can you share some of your insights there? Yes, uh, this has been quite a long thread in, in our research uh, alongside other things. Um, it all started when I was working at University of Illinois. I became very interested in the healthcare area. And this, is, this was going back to about um, the, the early 1990s. Um, so it was before the big uh, Institute of Medicine report to Ruiz Human that came out in 99, 2000. Um, so I became interested in the healthcare area, and I actually volunteered at the local hospital in, in the cardiovascular intensive care unit. And I worked there for about five hours a week for, for two or three years, just really embedding myself in that environment. And um, the, the uh, cardiovascular intensive care unit had, had a lot of patients who were pretty critical and uh, that they'd come out of the operating theater. The most of them had had um, bypass surgery done and um, started doing some work in that area with Jake Siegel. And uh, we observed some of the, the operations and uh, we, we noticed that the auditory alarms were, were ever present and we wondered what's the role that they're, they're, they're playing. And uh, we wrote a, a, a paper that came out in 2000 looking at how auditory alarms have different meanings in different contexts. And at that time, uh, Dave Woods had written a paper in, in 1995 on the so-called alarm problem and saying, and, and it was really um, prefiguring a lot of the current work that's being done on alarm fatigue in healthcare environments, saying that alarms have not been designed in a way that's really informative. Um, they, they come in very often cascades and floods at the wrong time, just when you need to be focusing on an emerging problem, but they're uninformative. And so uh, as a result, we started taking a, a different approach, saying how can um, auditory information uh, be informative? How can it give you just a, a background awareness of what's happening without demanding your attention? And uh, so we started doing work on that and uh, started work on this with Jake and, and then started work on it with uh, Marcus Watson when, when I moved to Australia. 
And we then became aware of a community of researchers called the International Community on Auditory Display, or ICAD, who look at techniques of auditory display, such as sonification. And sonification is the expression of data relations or relationships between data, but turning that into sound, so expressing data relations in sound relations. And Marcus and I did a lot of work on what kind of information would be useful in the operator to maintain a continuous awareness of the patient's well-being without relying on alarms. But could this auditory information alert you to a patient deterioration so that you would be aware of it maybe before you needed to do anything, but you would be mentally prepared for it? And we noticed that there is a very effective auditory display in the operating theatre, and that, of course, is the pulse oximeter. And the pulse oximeter has a tone. It's the, the, the beeping heart monitor, basically. Um, but what's often not realized is, as well as going beep, 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 uh, the tone also goes up and down in pitch, uh, depending on what the oxygen saturation of the patient is. And uh, I always end up singing this, so excuse me. Um, but if the oxygen saturation is going up towards 100%, it's going beep, 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 beep. And if it's decreasing and that's bad, it's going beep, 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 beep. And that decrease in pitch will automatically attract the attention of an anaesthetist. Anaesthetists get very uncomfortable if they hear that sound. And so we thought there are other variables that anaesthetists need to monitor. And on an investigation and accident reports and, and uh, discussions with an anesthesiologists and, and so on, we realized that the, the respiratory parameters of a patient, the, the amount of carbon dioxide that they're breathing out and their, their breathing depth and, and the, the, the rate of breathing and so on, these are vital signs that actually can give information before the pulse oximeter does for certain kinds of deteriorations in a patient. And so we worked on how we could express those respiratory parameters in sound. And uh, so after a lot of trial and error, we came up with a so-called respiratory sonification. And uh, so we, we developed that and we, we tested it in simulators. And there were other people who were thinking about the same thing. Um, Jake Siegel also developed a sonification for respiration, and he did that with uh, Butch Lowe, who's an anesthesiologist uh, who also has a, um, a, a strong side interest in human factors. And we now actually do a lot of work with, with Butch. He's one of our closest colleagues. And so we evaluated these ideas in lab studies and, and then in a high-end simulator study, you know, a, a, a high-fidelity simulator, and um, we're still hoping to be able to do a clinical trial. We have, um, with all the, the usual permissions, trialed it with consenting patients uh, in the operating theatre, and it has been shown to, to be successful in that context, and we hope to run a full clinical trial when we get the opportunity of doing that. But since then, we've actually made improvements to the heart monitor sound because that's not actually um, necessarily the best sound that you could have. So we've done enhancements to that. Um, many of my students have been working on that. So uh, 
Kelly Hinkfuss, Estrella Patterson, Yelena Zestich has been doing work on that. And that's some of our mo- most recent work. How can you make the pulse oximeter sound, which has been tremendously successful already? How can you make it even better? And uh, all of this work has been done in collaboration with, with clinicians. And so some of our um, uh, collaborations there have been um, most successful and most fruitful ones. So that, that just gives you a little bit of an idea of some of the stuff that we have done with sonification in uh, anesthesia environments and also in neonatal resuscitation environments. So neonatal resuscitation environments are, are pretty fascinating. I can imagine. Um, so this is, is very interesting to me. I, I've never worked with auditory, but I've worked with visual displays. And so one of the challenges there is there's sometimes lots of separate parameters and finding ways to kind of fuse them uh, so that people are seeing an integrated picture and not looking at, you know, seven different things and having to kind of fuse that information in their heads. And so I'm wondering, is there, as I think about this anesthetist or anesthesiologist, anesthetist, um, and uh, the different yeah. things this person's monitoring, do they each have a tone or is there a way that you're able to kind of merge those? That's that's a really important question, Laura, and it, it, it's one that we um, have striven for. Um, when we developed the sonification, the initial work that, that uh, for respiratory sonification with Marcus Watson, um, we, we had one experience with an anesthesiologist as we were developing it that, that made us think that we were on the right track. Um, this was an anesthesiologist in, in Melbourne, and uh, we had been developing the sound, and the sound was in its more mature configuration. So we invited this guy over, we, we, we showed him the simulation, we showed him the sound, showed him how it worked, played it for him and so on. And then um, we just sort of broke off and we were having a conversation. But in the background, we were playing a scenario where there was a, a simulated anesthesia incident. So something went wrong with the patient. Now at that point in the conversation, we all had our backs to the computer. We had our backs to, to the visual display showing what was happening. And halfway through our conversation, this intraoperative event actually started. And um, our colleague was talking, talking, talking about, you know, what happens in the operating theater unrelated to, to, to what was going on in the scenario. But all of a sudden he broke off and he said, what are you doing with the patient? Are you bleeding the patient? And that actually what was what was happening. So the, the, the sounds that were coming from the scenario were associated with what would happen if a patient lost blood. And even though he had been talking, you know, his mouth and brain were moving um, in a conversation with us, he had been able to process in the background not just that something was happening to, to, to the, the, the end-tidal carbon dioxide, something was happening to the breathing rate and all these other symptoms. He was not thinking of each symptom, each vital sign separately. He'd been able to package the whole thing up and make a clinical determination of what was happening, you know, that you're bleeding the patient, which would then lead very much to what the next thing would be that he would do as an anesthesiologist and how he would advise the surgeon. You know, he would probably ask the surgeon to, to, to suspend uh, operating at that point. So that made us think, hey, people are really processing these sounds as an integrated whole, not in their parts, but as an integrated whole. And that was really important for us in, in 
making us think that that we had um, the, the sounds were, number one working pre-attentively so they didn't require focal attention to, to, to work and secondly that they could be interpreted as a high level of abstraction in terms of what they meant clinically not just in terms of what the individual vital sign, what their status was. So does that answer your question? Absolutely. That is fascinating. Since then, um, we've looked at the relationship between the pulse oximeter and the respiratory sonification. One thing that we haven't done yet is to look at how our enhancements to the pulse oximeter would work with the respiratory sonification um, because just a little bit about the pulse oximeter and some of the more recent work, if you don't mind, if you've got a moment. Um, the pulse oximeter, particularly in neonatal resuscitation environments, um, is a very important tool. But for premature neonates, you've got to be sure that they don't get too much oxygen in. So if you're giving them supplemental oxygen, you've got to be very careful that you don't actually take them up to 98, 99, 100% oxygen saturation because it can mean that they get pathologies that can last a lifetime. They can get blindness, for example. They can be blind or they, there's a damage to, to the lung tissue. So um, when the pulse oximeter sound goes up, beep, 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 that might actually be bad for certain classes of patients like premature babies. And so you need to indicate when you're getting to a point where it's getting too high. And you also need to indicate when you're getting to a point where it's too low as well, because that's incompatible with life, as they like to say. So um, we've done various experiments about where you add acoustic enhancements when things are getting too high or getting too low. So, for example, you can add tremolo to the sound. And this is a bit difficult to sing, but I'll give it a go. Um, so you can go So you're adding a trembling sound, which is instantly recognizable, but you're still hearing that the sound is going up, but it's saying, hey, I'm in a zone um, where I'm not meant to be for this particular patient. So we've but those are enhancements that we've added to the pulse oximeter sound. And the pulse oximeter sound operates in a different acoustic space, a different part of the, the sound landscape, if you like, from the sort of sounds that we have for a respiratory sound, respiratory sonification. And uh, one thing that we would really love to do is to play them all together and see how it works as a kind of a symphony and whether when you put those sounds together, whether it works in a pre-attentive way. So there's a whole lot more that needs to be done in that area. So people go out there and do it, and we're happy to help you. Right. Now, it's really fascinating stuff. Um, and, you know, I think we can all imagine the applications because, you know, even just day to day, we all pay attention to these sorts of things. Um, so, yeah. so. Penny, your international work is, is well known and uh, and you already listed a, a number of folks that you've worked with. So um, folks know a lot about you and your work. I'm wondering if you could tell us one thing about you that our audience probably doesn't know. One thing that the audience doesn't know. Um, well, uh, let me see. Think, think, okay, I, I can tell you things that are unrelated to my professional life. 
Let's mean? hear it. <laughs> okay, right. Well, these, we already know you can sing, so uh, so well, don't well, count. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, so, um, no, don't, don't, don't test me too hard on that one. Uh, well, there were things that are known locally, but maybe not generally. Um, one of them that that um, with COVID and lockdown and so on that that I've been um, revamping is that uh, I make cocktails. Um, many years ago, in, in the 1970s, um, I did a cocktail-making course um, in, in the summer vacation from university. So it was a three-week training course um, where we learned to make uh, 50 different cocktails, and then at the end of it, we were tested on our ability to make those 50 cocktails under high speed, to spike a keg at the same time, and to change the paper roll in a till while our instructor was throwing orders at us. And uh, that's been a lot of fun, actually, ever since, of being able to make cocktails in the very traditional 1940s, 1950s style. So its relevance to um, the pandemic and the lockdowns and so on is that um, um, for the first few weeks of the lockdown, uh, my students said, some of my students said, teach us to make cocktails. And so we had these webinars, if you like, um, where I, I would be sitting at my little bar or standing at my little bar and we would make different kinds of cocktails and, and the students would follow on at home. And uh, so we made sour cocktails one week. We made aromatic cocktails another. We made Christmas cocktails and so on. Um, so, yes, that, that's been a very um, useful social skill, shall we say, and um, I've been very happy to teach people cocktail making as well as human factors and cognitive engineering over the years. So that's something that's known locally, but maybe not generally. That is my favorite answer to that question in this entire podcast series. <laughs> I'll teach you too, you know. I would like to. Yeah. I actually, I started the masterclass version of uh, cocktail making, but I haven't finished it yet. So now oh, I know I can okay. you. Well, I have course notes. I can send you the course notes. Well, so the thing that I was most struck by was you've got to buy all this stuff up front, right? If you really want to make fancy cocktails, you got to have a, a fairly robust set of materials to start with. You do, yes. And you, you need to make liquid sugar and it needs to be um, quite concentrated liquid sugar to make really successful cocktails. So um, anyway, I'm giving away some of the trade secrets here. <laughs> <laughs> but it uh, it can get expensive. But but if if you limit yourself to certain classes of cocktails, you can get away with um, just a, a, a few types of cocktails. So for example, if you start with sours, you you can you know get away with fairly simple stuff. But those are the details. Yeah. Yeah. It gets very complicated quickly. Another connection that I have to this is a couple of years ago, I was doing some expertise management uh, pilot work uh, with a company that was essentially trying to take the, you know, the, the Keurig model of coffee uh, into the cocktail world. So oh. they were developing little pods basically for cocktails. And I quickly realized how complex it gets. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, th there's a very classic book. Uh, called The Art of Mixing Drinks by David Embree that was written in the 1940s. And um, my instructor had worked in the Caribbean in various resorts. He'd actually made cocktails for, for Frank Sinatra and people like that. And he did it that classic David Embree style. So that's the style that I learned, which is doing it very much from fresh ingredients rather than pods. Right. So there you are, everybody. That's cocktails. That's awesome. Okay, so I have another fun question for you. 
I want to ask you to tell us two truths about yourself and one lie. And Brian and I will try to guess which is the lie. Okay. Hmm. Here's one. I have run in a half marathon charity run and I won it. Okay, so that, that's the first one. Second one, before I started psychology, I got a degree in art history from the University of Melbourne. And the third one, I love I love to cook Vietnamese food. Hmm. Are you going to go first, Brian, or should I? I'm not going first. Okay, this is hard. I think that you um, did not do a degree in art history. And I think you did not win the half marathon. That's an extremely difficult thing to do. <laughs> not that you couldn't, but it's just really hard. Are you done? Oh, we're yep. done. Those are our guesses for the lie. I've been really cruel to you guys. They're all lies. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well played, ma'am. I'm well sorry played. about that. <laughs> That's um, hilarious. Um, oh. But they are actually all half truths at the same time. Yeah, because I, I did run in a half a marathon charity fun run. And I did do run do a subject in art history at University of Melbourne, <laughs> and I do like to cook feasts of other kind of food, um, and that that has actually been I've, I've relearned how to cook since uh, COVID, um, so they are half truths. So unfortunately, there's no way that you could win. I'm so sorry. That was cruel of me. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun, Penny. Thank you for speaking with us today. Well, thank you both, Laura and Brian, for, um, for, for, for inviting me on. Uh, I think it's a great initiative, and um, I'm, I'll give you some links to some of the work that I've talked about and happy to follow up with anybody who's interested in following up with us on anything that we do. Wonderful. Well, on that note, thank you for joining us. For the NDM Podcast, I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.